Second reading of God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in sympathy with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, 
that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the fiery burning furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments afflicted, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made into an ash heap. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Today, in 2001, in 2021, if you were to go to the city of Pyongyang in North Korea, you would be going to a city of electric lights, a city that has uh, working engines and cars, a city where they work with computers during the day, and you would also be going to a city where the kind of idolatry that we see in our text today is happening this very minute, in 2021. When you get off the plane in Pyongyang and you're going to visit North Korea, there is a large statue of uh, their leader that you are brought to, and before you can come into the country, 
you are expected to kiss that statue and to make prayers to it. This very day in our world. What you see in our text today is not all that strange historically, nor is it something of the ancient past. And while North Korea may be the most in-your-face and blatant example of it, the truth is human governments have wanted to receive what God alone is due since really we have had human governments. They have wanted to be divine. And paradoxically, they oftentimes push into service the gods of the peoples to be a useful tool for their divinity. And that is what we see in our text before us. There is nothing that divides humanity like religion. And how can it not be so? In the classes I teach for EKU, one of the things we attend to on the first day of class is the question, what exactly is religion? How would you define it? We've come to have a class on it, but what are we talking about? As we work through the definition, several things come to the light, one of which is religion by its very nature is the acknowledgement of men of that which they accept to be above themselves, something bigger than themselves, something that they themselves are less than and they can give themselves to. It is their highest priority, their greatest good. It is what they live to serve. And all men, without exception, by this definition have a religion, or they themselves become the focus of their religion, which is immensely ugly. But all men have that sense that they are uh, in service to something greater. They, they live their lives in orbit around it, and that lays a foundation for everything else in the man's life. His ethics, his loyalties, what he considers to be his duties... All of these things rise up out of his religion, and uh, this is the driving force of the man's life. If men have multiple religions, if you have various diverse religions, you will have various diverse foundations, and it will cause different answers to the question, what is right and wrong? What do you live for? What is higher than you? So, nothing divides mankind like religion. It is unique in its ability to divide. It is also unique in its ability to unite. If you and I have the same ground of being, to use the philosophical term, if you and I are built on the same foundation, you and I will agree with what is right and what is wrong, we will agree upon what we are willing to die for. We will agree upon what we are willing to live for. If you and I are built on the same foundation for our being, we will be more than brothers. We will be closer than family because this is literally the very foundation of a man's life. 
And so that which divides is also paradoxically that which unites like nobody's business. And the governments of the world have not failed to notice that. Religion is an amazing, potent force, and nothing props up the state than a religious loyalty to it. They are aware of where their power comes from. It comes from the dedicated loyalty of its citizens. Religion is what produces that kind of loyalty. The state is not an idiot, and it will take to itself what it can use to develop that kind of quality. It will take to itself religion and will put religion into its own service. And that is effectively what we see happening in our text. As we begin to consider what implications we should draw from this historical event, we probably ought to play the where, what, who, when, and why game with the text, just kind of to ground ourselves in what is happening. The question of where is, quote, the plains of Dura in, quote, the province of Babylon. It is a central location, but it is not in the city of Babylon. It is, however, where you will travel if you are going to leave that city or you are going to approach that city. Babylon has just become the world power. Uh, As the prophet Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in the last chapter, God has given you rule over all the known world that you know. God has given it to you. And so Babylon has become the city of cities. And all kinds of people, all kinds of languages, all religions will make their way to the city and they will leave the city. And whenever that happens, they will be subject to the phenomenon we see in the passage. And what is that phenomenon? Well, it's an image. The text speaks of an idol, and it is exceedingly big, and it is exceedingly valuable. Archaeology does not reveal this giant statue of gold to us, but I'm not really surprised about that. As the ebb and flow of human history goes, and as empires replace one another, very few empires would leave a gigantic statue of gold just sitting on the plain for people to notice. They would take it and melt it down, and it would be part of their booty, and it would disappear from history. But it stood at one time on the plains of Dura. It was an idol, and it was attached to a political decree. That decree was, when you hear all that music, you will stop what you are doing, you will bow to the idol, and you will worship it. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what religion you possess, no matter what foundation you have laid for your life, you will, on the command of the state, bow down to this image and you will worship it. And what is the image? In most art, you will see an 80-foot tall statue of a Babylonian man a deity that they have created. 
But is that really what the image would have looked like? Well, maybe, but not likely. The, the image is actually not described in what it looks like, except it's made of gold. And it's described in the plural. When we read about what the image represents, we're told that it represents your God's King Nebuchadnezzar, which would which suggest it's something more like a diorama than it is a mere individual. It is a pantheon of pagan gods that the people are to worship. It's made of gold, and the state has told you what you have to worship. Now, after the music stops, you can go back to worship anything you want to. But when the music plays, you will obey the state, which is higher than your god. You will obey the state, which is higher than what the foundation for your life has been laid out of. And you will worship these gods at the state's command, therefore de facto worshiping the state, because the state told you to do it. You will notice that Daniel is not mentioned in this chapter. That has bothered some people, but the chapter breaks are artificial. They were put in long after the prophet Daniel laid his pen down. And as we move into this uh, account, we have already seen Daniel positioned where he will be. That is in verse 48 and 49 of the preceding chapter where we read, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, which is what we're talking about, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. However, as we go into the next verse, Daniel sets something up that is very significant. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. The term the gate of the king refers to the king's court. It is where he holds his political rule, and the one thing you can guarantee is it's not on the plain of Dura. It is in the city, it is where Nebuchadnezzar reigns, And Daniel tells you, now that's where I am most of the time. I'm in that court. I'm not going to hear the music. It doesn't play in the city. It plays outside the city. It plays for the the peasants. It plays for the ruled over. It's out there. They're going to hear the music. They're going to be affected by it. But it's also going to affect those who are out there dealing with them, And we have met Daniel's three friends in the first chapter. He has had them placed over the affairs effectively, which means they will be out on the plain of Dura, and they will be expected to bow because you lead by example, don't you? I mean, haven't we been taught since the very beginning of our lives, if you're going to lead people, you're going to lead by example, you will show a good pattern for men to follow. So Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are going to face this all the time. And so will everybody who is approaching. Who did this? 
Well, it is Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the state. They are, after all, as the Chaldeans said, quote, his gods, end quote. The question of when is that it takes place at the dedication service of this idol, but the decree is to be in perpetua. It is to be going on forever. We are brought to the ceremony where the idol is unveiled, and people have come from all over the world to the ceremony for a new era. There is going to be a new part of your worship. It will be these gods, these state-approved gods, and you will worship them even if you worship something else. Now, why is Nebuchadnezzar doing this? Well, I've hinted at what I think the answer is, but, but technically the text does not tell us why. Read it from first to last. Daniel doesn't actually probe his motivations. And so in that evangelical spirit of where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible is silent, we hypothesize endlessly, um, uh, people do that, and there's a number of answers that come to the forefront. Archaeology tells us that the Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar rules over is actually a very religiously diversified place to begin with. The, quote, Chaldeans, the Babylonians, actually are very divided in the gods they worship. And that brings division, as I have already expressed. It is likely that what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's trying to unify his people. He is trying to bring them together on a foundation so they will all have the same loyalties, the same ethics, the same goals. He is trying to take away from them their their, uh, regional worship and make a worship that will underlie his state. We are told through the archaeological record that this is an issue in Babylon for its entire 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar's son will so be embroiled in the difficulties of a religiously diverse state that the emperor himself, the ruler of Babylon, will have to go into self-exile because he has so tripped the religious uh, tripwires of the area, and he will have to give his son co-regency, a son by the name of Belshazzar. And we will meet him in chapter 5, and he will be doing some very interesting religious things. But be that as it may, archaeology suggests it's an attempt to unify the country. That may be the answer. It may also be a symptom of what happens when unconverted men actually hear actual revelation from God. One of the major themes of what happens in the book of Daniel is God gets a hold of Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of all the earth, who thinks that he has brought the earth together under his hand, and God slaps him down like the gnat he is, and actually in his grace brings him to repentance. So Nebuchadnezzar actually meets God's grace, but at this particular moment, he's not a converted man. 
And he has been told some interesting things in chapter 2. Again, going back to that chapter and verse 37, this is what Daniel the prophet has spoken to him. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of what? You are the head of gold. The, the image of his dream was an idol, and it had a golden head, and everything streamed out of the head. What was going to come next would, would come from the head, and the head was made of gold, and the head represented Nebuchadnezzar. It represented Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had on the good authority of the God of the Hebrews that he was a head of gold. What do you do with that kind of information if you're a pagan? Well, you process it through pagan thought, and you say, I'm golden, and I'm divine, because God has told me, he set me up to be the head of gold, what should I do but honor myself, as this God is honoring me, and you know, also honor him, kind of, in raising up an idol of gold, which I am. It would certainly not be the first time that pagan rulers have gotten a hold of the actual revelation of God and horrendously misinterpreted it to absolute disastrous consequences. History actually shows that if you want something really, really dangerous, just give the pagans God's word, but don't let them be converted and see what they do with it the image doesn't ever turn out to be a pretty one. Like if you were to, I don't know, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but let's imagine a farcical situation where Christians were demanding that the state schools run by absolute pagans teach the Bible. I'm sure that will work out really well, right? I mean, it's the Bible, right? They're going to teach it right, right? You know they're not. They're pagans. They're going to get a hold of the word. They're not converted. The spirit is not leading them. And it's going to be like handing a 38 special to a six-year-old. It's going to be an absolute disaster. That is possibly what is going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has been told by God he's a king of gold. And what do you do if you're a king of gold? You lift up an idol for religious worship. Because that's what you do when you're a pagan. Be that as it may, that is the foundations of our story, and what implications can we draw from this historical event? Well, the first one is, uh, God sets up kings, not men, but human kings will immediately turn around and attempt to respond with the favor, and they will attempt to set up gods. This has been happening since the very beginning of history. The government wants to give you your God. It is in its interest to do that, and this has been happening long, long before your birth. Governments just do that. 
And the people of God cannot go along with it. They cannot enculturate. They cannot say we will go along to get along. It is not an option for us. It cannot be on the table. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, you will read a very famous portion of Scripture that has been a, a rallying cry for the church of Jesus Christ since God made it visible in Abraham. Uh, well, I mean, it's Moses, but the principle has been there since God made a visible church. And it reads as follows. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's called the Shema. And it is one of the most blatant and clear statements of monotheism that the world has ever been given. And it is amazing when you realize what's being said. Hear, O Israel, that is the people of God, the people that God has called into visible fellowship with himself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, which is the covenant name of God, it is the name Yahweh, it is his personal name, the Lord our El, which is the Hebrew word and the, uh, also the, the, the Syriac word, the Aramaic word for the gods. Yahweh our gods, El is always plural, Yahweh is only one. It is a declaration that what men worship in plurality, the multiple gods that men have imagined, the multiple gods that have been given multiple names by multiple types of peoples, all of the gods, only one of them has an actual reality. The Lord our God, the Lord our El, the Lord who is the true gods, the Lord is one. There is only one God, only one God that we morally serve, only one God that we are called into fellowship with. The rest of the gods don't exist, according to the Shema. The Lord is the gods. There is only one God, the Lord is one, we are the people of that one God, and we do not have the option to be open-minded. The world, since the time of Babylon, has said, what's the big deal? There are multiple gods in the world, multiple peoples worship different gods, religion unifies if it's used the way we want it to be used, Go along, get along, kiss the, kiss the statue when you get off the plane. Do the religious ceremony. Say Caesar is Lord and burn a pinch of incense to him. It's no skin off your back, right? I mean, it, it's just a formality. It's just a unifying kind of thing. The true God doesn't let us do that. It's not an option. We have here 
three men who have been put in a life-threatening circumstance. They have been held up to us by the Holy Spirit as this is what God wants of his people. They are threatened with their lives, and there is no suggestion that they have the option to say, eh, let's kind of bend a little. For the people of God, there is no bending here. God is God, only God is God, only God must be worshipped. You cannot just say, well, it's culture, it's formality, I'll go along. If you let the state tell you who God is and how to worship God, you are in idolatry. And idolatry is competition for the one God. Idolatry is adultery to God. And the people of God must declare the Shema. They must declare the Lord, the only God, is God, and he we will worship with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Him alone. And that is what we see here. Such moments will reveal who the invisible church is. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you would say, he already said that, and I know I did. But that is a major theme of Daniel. When, when times are not hard, it is very easy for men to outwardly say, I will be loyal to God. I will attend to his covenant. I will go to his worship. I will do the things that religion requires of me. It's no big deal, and it's not. Until the pressure comes, until you are demanded of, will you be faithful to God or will you be faithful to men? When the pressure comes, that's when you find out who's actually converted. Because conversion comes out in action and it comes out when it's dangerous and it's difficult. You want to know who is really loyal to God? Let the bullets fly. Let the house be on fire. Let there be a risk involved. And you will see who is converted and who isn't. Now, this story is often taught with the idea that standing on the plain of Dura is a bunch of Jewish people, a bunch of people who are outwardly in the covenant of God, and they're all bowing. Well, technically, this is the dedication of the idol, and Nebuchadnezzar has called in the rulers from everywhere, which means you have all types and conditions of men here. But if there are any covenant people, all of them are on their face bowing at this point, except three of them. When the pressure comes, you're going to find out who's only a member of the church on paper. And at this moment, at this dedication service, uh, the visible church only includes three members of the invisible. And it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's often very surprising who actually is loyal to God. You don't know until the pressure comes. I have a feeling that those watching these events would have been very surprised that the three people who are rebelling against the government, 
are in fact government officials. They are the men who have been sent out to govern the province of Babylon. They represent Nebuchadnezzar. And so it must have been really strange when these magistrates don't bow. You would have thought it would be somebody else. But the pressure brings the answer who is faithful. And these three government officials have a higher loyalty, a more solid foundation to their lives than the government they serve. It is the God they are in covenant with, and they are actually the faithful. It is in these moments that pagan religion will attack godly religion. We are told in uh, verse 8 through 12 that certain Chaldeans accused these men. The term Chaldean is an interesting one. It can be used of the racially Babylonian. They are called the Chaldean people. But it is not always used that way in Scripture, and sometimes the use is more this other way than it is racially. And it's kind of like the way we might use the word gypsy in English. If I told you my friend Sean is a real gypsy, what would go through your mind? You might think, well, he's Romany. He's actually a gypsy by blood. But that's probably not the first thing that goes through your mind. If I say Sean is a real gypsy, you're going to think Sean travels a lot. He didn't stay in one place. He gets around. Because that's how we use the word. We can use it as an adjective. Well, at this time, the word Chaldean refers to a very religious person of Babylonian persuasion who is involved in the various multiple cults of the Babylonian people. And that seems to be the way the term is being used here. These pagan priests who are willing to compromise... They are willing to have their God but have Caesar above him or them. Uh, They're going to make hay while the the sun shines, and they're going to attack God-revealed religion at this moment, and they do. They are the pagan religions, and they point to the faithful and say, O king, the faithful to God are unfaithful to you. Now, history has shown that that's really not the way it is. Justin Martyr, when he defended the Christian faith, made the loyalty of God's people to the secular authorities one of the pillars of his argument that the faith produces righteousness. It's just we are not faithful to the king over God. If you make us choose, we will choose God. And the pagans say, not us. We will choose the state over our God any time, and we've done it. We've shown our loyalty. You need to attack those guys. And that's what is happening before us. Isn't it amazing that Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as the reasonable person in this story? Our three friends are brought before him, and the decree has been that if you don't do it, you get killed. But we're told that Nebuchadnezzar's face changes against them when he finally becomes really mad. 
which means that at first he's actually very positive to them. And he asks them, boys, what's the matter? You're not following government orders. Let's be reasonable about this. If, if you will do it now, if you'll just go ahead and do it now, uh, everything will be forgiven. It will be good. And we'll just forget this little incident. Because I'm reasonable, I'm kind, right? Your infraction can be overlooked because I, the pagan king, am actually benevolent. But you are going to do it my way. You will do it my way or I'll kill you. I'm, I'm reasonable. I'm, I'm not the unreasonable one. Now, the verse right before this, we're told that when the Chaldeans tell Nebuchadnezzar this, he's filled with absolute rage. And why is he filled with rage? It's because the worship of the king has been challenged. The rage he is feeling is from selfishness and pride. But when he presents himself to these rebels, that is, the faithful, he presents himself as very reasonable and and willing to make compromises as long as the compromise doesn't end with you being faithful to God. I mean, we can make compromises as long as in the end you are unfaithful. The pagan state does not understand our devotion to God It probably can't, and it really sees itself as the rational party in this matter. But how quickly that will change. The state is very happy to kill the faithful. They always have been throughout human history, and that is any state. Any human state is very happy to kill God's faithful people if they feel they have to. Remember Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot a vain thing? They conspire together to throw off the chains of the Lord and of his Christ. That's all of them. And if you push them, they'll kill you. That is a deduction we need to take from the Holy Scripture, don't be fooled. They will murder you. And Nebuchadnezzar does that. It's just he doesn't do it well. But the reason why he doesn't do it well is because God exists. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of talking with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, says, now, what kind of God will deliver you actually from the state, will deliver you from me? And it's for him a rhetorical question. He believes the answer is none of them. The gods, if they're real, don't do anything. But I do. I'm the state. I have the power to kill you. You might want to think about who really has power here. If the world really is the naturalistic creation without the hand of God that the state teaches through its public schools it is, Nebuchadnezzar is it wrong. If the presentation of what reality is is what you hear in the typical college classroom, you really need to pay attention to what Nebuchadnezzar just told you because it's going to end the way he expects it will. If there is no God, the state will kill you, will run right over top of you, will not care, and you will be as if you never were, and that'll be that. 
they won't feel any remorse. They won't think about you another second. You will just be another victim of state power, and that's that. If that's true. Turns out in our account, it isn't. And it is for that very reason that liberals want to assign the book of Daniel to an estate of mythology. If this event that happened on the plain of Dura really happened, then there really is a God in heaven, and occasionally he does things, and liberals don't want that to be true. But if it is mythology, we need to no longer be talking about it. Because if it is merely a story, then what I am teaching you is very irresponsible of me. Because I am teaching you to resist man in favor of God, and God won't save you, God will not act, I am actually endangering your lives because this is merely a story and it never happened. And honestly, we should just burn the book because it's dangerous to men. But the good news is there is a God, and that this day on the plain of Dura, he did act, he would not be mocked, and he delivered his own. And if that be the case, then all of reality has to be viewed through the fact that he is there. I mean, reasonable men have to think that way. That is why liberals hate the book. But that is what happened on the plain of Dura. God did act. And the people of God had to trust not in strategy, not in politicians, not in cleverly devised programs, but in the actual existence of God himself. They answer the king, and they answer him with all respect. There is nothing in this text that would suggest that they do not do the king the proper respect he deserves. But they say to him, God is real. Our God can deliver us. Our God will. They make the statement, he will do it. But then they back up from it and say, now, God is God, and he'll decide what to do. And even if God doesn't deliver us, because he is most free, as our confession says, even if God doesn't, we are the people of God, and we don't worship your gods, and we're not going to do it. How do you make that kind of statement? You make that statement by believing with all your heart and mind, God is really there. And God has made promises to me. He has made promises that he will not break. He has made promises that extend into the afterlife, which exists. That's really the only way they can say, our God will deliver us, even if he doesn't take us out of your hands. They are looking at the fact that life extends beyond the life of the body. Whatever happens this day, God will have delivered us. He will deliver us if he keeps us from being burned. He will deliver us if we are burned. Because our God will deliver us. He has made his promises. And our faith is not in the state. Our faith is in God. And we will not comply. We will not make the state God no matter what you do. That is faith. That is real faith. Faith is what you absolutely depend on when you are facing a fiery furnace. 
And that is what people of God have to have. Because the state will not only kill you, they'll kill their own. The king becomes so incensed, he has the furnace heated seven times hotter, he sends his best servants who obey him to take these upstarts to the furnace, and his actions lead to the death of his own men. And you don't read anything in here where he is necessarily sorry about that. It just happens. Because the state is in the business of killing. That's what it does. If it will kill the faithful because they're not loyal to the state in the state's eyes, because they're loyal to God, do you really honestly think they won't kill anyone else? They're willing to kill anybody. Their own, their best. And that's what happens. The faithful to the state die today. But the faithful to God don't. Whether martyr or delivered, the faithful will resist today, and God is pleased to deliver them. But whether they had been martyred or whether they were delivered as they were, by their resistance, the gospel was preached. The end of this account is very different than the first of it. At the first of the account, the state is telling you who to worship, and it will kill you if you don't, and it's in charge. But at the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the most mighty ruler on earth, is saying this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Wait a minute, wrong chapter. Same idea. At the end of this chapter... Then Nebuchadnezzar went to the mouth of the fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So they do that, and then the king declares, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Trust is synonymous with faith. Who trusted in him. Um, who sent his angel and delivered his servants from the king's word, frustrated the king's word. They yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar the pagan, Nebuchadnezzar the government, the state, is actually giving glory to God. Would that have happened if God's people said, you know, we just need to de-escalate this. We need to, you know, go along, get along. We need to figure out how to kind of blend in and culturate ourselves. Because after all, the apostle says, I become all things to all men, which means I should become a sinner. Um, we're just going to sin a little bit. Everybody's going to get along here. Would the gospel of the prophet, the priest, and the king... The gospel is Jesus the Christ. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Would the gospel have been preached if God's people said, we, we just got to go along and get along? You know the answer to that. When we do that, the pagans don't respect our God, and why would they? As I said, what is religion? It is the foundation upon which you build your life. It is where your ethics come from, your values come from, it is what you believe is larger than you, well, if it's not those things, it's not your religion. And if there are any 
covenant people on the plain of Dura today, and they're bowing down and worshiping the image, the pagans look at them and say, why should I believe you don't believe? Because belief comes out in what you do. And in the fire, in the danger, in the moment of question, that's when you find out who believes. And the pagans may hate God. In fact, uh, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 through 12 will tell us this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is Peter saying there? But at the beginning of the quote, he's talking about how you are a peculiar people, set apart, set apart from the pagans, faithful to God, obeying God. They will revile you for doing it. They will heap dissipation on you for doing it. But in the end, they will respect you because you really are who you are. Even pagans hate hypocrisy. And even pagans admire actual faith. Peter says they will glorify God because you're faithful while they are heaping abuse on you. And I can't really think of any more abuse than being thrown into a fiery furnace. But Peter's words are illustrated by our historical event. The gospel is preached not by those who go along to get along. It is preached by those who are faithful to God no matter what. They're not rebels. They are simply loyal to the highest authority. Now, there is a verse in this chapter, and I know things are getting along, but um, when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he says in the words of the King James or the New King James, there's a fourth guy in there, and he looks like the Son of God. If you read the NIV or uh, some other translations, he will say he looks like a, a son of the gods. Which one did he say? Because they're not exactly the same thing. Well, they're not the same thing at all, but it's not a matter of a textual variant. It's a matter of what you think he's saying and what's really happening. The term El in Aramaic is plural, and he uses it. Uh, it looks like a son of the gods. But in the Hebrew scriptures, El may be plural, but it always has a singular to it. The gods, the is singular. It's the shadow of the Shema. What is really the gods? Well, there's only one God. We know that what mankind calls the gods is a, a misunderstanding of the actual God. And so if a faithful man were to say, it looks like the Son of God is in the furnace with them, He'd use the same language as Nebuchadnezzar is using. The question is, does Nebuchadnezzar mean that? I'm not sure. 
But he's right. Who is with the faithful in the fiery furnace? It is actually the Son of God. This is a manifestation of Jesus Christ. His faithful have not been delivered from being thrown into the furnace. They are delivered in the furnace, and they are delivered because he is with them. This is the Lord Jesus Christ with his people, not escaping persecution, but being in the persecution with them. And he is Lord because who is the real king of kings? Who is the real Lord of lords? It is not Caesar. It is not Babylon. It is not the state. It is the Son of God. And the Son of God is a faithful king who will deliver his people in the way he will deliver them for his glory. He will be there on the plain of Dura, and he will do what he wants, and no king will say, what are you doing? No king will say, I won't let you do that. Jesus is Lord, he is real, and he shows up six centuries before he walks among us to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if he is willing to do that, we see who he is and what he will do.